an inerrant word in your hands, turning with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Hear now the word of God. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, and be dependent upon no one. This ends a reading of God's holy and narrative and inspired word. May he write its eternal truths upon our heart. So this Christmas season, when you turn on the television and you're watching the Christmas movies and you're seeing the commercials, something that is always highlighted in our popular culture celebration of the season is family. Uh, it's the core of our modern celebration of the Christmas season. Um, the older I get, the more I come to actually appreciate this familial aspect of the season. Back when I was young, I really liked the presents. I'll be honest with you, I still really like the presents. I am wearing a present right now. I've become a very stereotypical father. Ties are my favorite thing now, so the more ties I can get, the better. I like presents. But I really like family. But but this this year it was just, it was just a little bit a little bit different. Um, back when I was growing up, it was the whole family: grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, brothers, sisters, mom, dad. Uh, this year it, it wasn't it wasn't quite that that way. Um, me, and my siblings have all kind of been scattered by the wind, as it were. I didn't see. My brother, I didn't see either one of my sisters. Um, same thing, I didn't see my aunts. I didn't see my uncles this Christmas either. I wasn't even able to see uh, my grandmother. She lives in a retirement uh, community that has been in lockdown because there's a really bad flu and COVID outbreak right now, and so I wasn't able to visit them. Um, uh, I was able to see my, my, my dad, I was able to see my stepmom, my in-laws, but there's a lot of my family that I'm just used to seeing at Christmas time that I wasn't able to visit with. But oddly enough, it wasn't a cause for despair. It was not a depressing thing, not because I don't love them, not because I don't miss them, but it's because God has a special way of giving us what we need providing for his people's every need. I may not have been able to see my brothers and sisters according to blood, but this morning I am in the presence of my brothers and sisters according to the blood of another, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when God saves us in his son, the Lord Jesus he gives us over and unites us to him through his body, the church. We are a family. And that makes this a very special occasion for us. And so I chose this morning's text for this very reason. 
many of us, our kids, grandkids, have gone off. Maybe we weren't able to be with them this Christmas. Or maybe we're alone. And Christmas highlights that loneliness, that, those feelings that can hurt. But this text tells us something else. Your, your hope, your joy, your peace are not found in the people who share your last name. It is found in the people who share the name of your great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want us to be able to meditate and to praise God because of the command that we are given in this text to love our brothers. And so I want us to see three things in this text this morning that the Apostle Paul tells us. First of all, the Apostle Paul is going to inform us of what brotherly love is. Secondly, he is going to inspire us to love our brothers. And then thirdly, he is going to instruct us in how we are to love our brothers. So three eyes there. Informs us, he inspires us, and he instructs us in brotherly love. Let us begin by looking at how he informs us. Um, uh, Take your eyes and look in your Bibles with me into verse 9. Uh, Listen to what Paul writes here. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. What is is this brotherly love that the Apostle Paul speaks of here? If I gave you a little Greek quiz here, I bet you would be able to guess what Greek word is it that Paul uses for brotherly love. Philadelphia. I mean, it's, it's, you learn it in history class. What does the name Philadelphia mean? The city of brotherly love. It's the word that he uses here for the, the love that the saints have for one another. But let's take a second to look at what the word meant in its original Greek context. It really meant a, 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 a close friendship type of love. A love that you might have for a, a close friend. A love that you might have for a brother, an actual brother, or an actual sister, or maybe somebody who you would consider to be your equal. If you were a nobleman, another nobleman. If you were a peasant, another peasant. But Paul is using this in a very different sense than it would have been used in the Greek world. If you look in your Bibles at, in chapter 4, verse 1, how he just begins this section. He says, brothers. The whole congregation are his brothers. This is, this is no just ordinary congregant, no ordinary member of the church. This is the Apostle Paul called specifically by Jesus for the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles. One of the chief leaders in the church, and he is looking at the congregation, and he is saying, you're not my sons, you're not my servants, you're not my slaves, you are my brothers. This would have been foreign to the Greeks. No nobleman would ever say to a peasant, you are my brother, I have Philadelphia love for you. But Paul is quick to say, you are my brothers and I love you. But it's important to note that what Paul is doing here is he's not changing the definition of the word. He's changing the definition of the people sitting next to you. They may not share your last name. They may not share your same skin color. They may not share 
anything at all with you except for the name of Jesus Christ. And because of that, they are your brothers. It's as Jesus says in Matthew, when people come, he's teaching the people and people come to him and they say, your, your mother and your brothers are outside and they're, they're looking for you urgently. You need to go to them. And, and Jesus turns to them and he says, who are my mothers and my brothers? Then looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. When Paul uses the word Philadelphia here, he is using it in the same sense that Jesus is speaking of these people around him. Yes, that was his mother, Mary. That was his brother, Jude and James. But his family was around him. His family was the one that he would give his life for. So let me ask you a a question for application. Where does the care of your family in Christ fall on your priority list? Let me read you a quote from the Scottish theologian uh, James Denny. He says, The importance of brotherly love is not sufficiently considered by most Christian people, who, if they looked into the matter, might find the few of of their strongest affections were determined by, By the common faith. Is not love a strong and peculiar word to describe the feeling you cherish towards some members of the church, brethren to you in Christ Jesus? Yet love to the brethren is the very token of our right to a place in the church ourselves. What Denny said is, is both striking and true. Brotherly love is an indispensable part of the Christian life. If you were speaking to a man who was a husband of a wife and he speaks urgently about how much he loves her, how much he cares for her, how much he provides for her, and then you see the two in a room together and there's nothing but anger, abuse, screaming, no, no, no sign of care or compassion, you would be right in thinking maybe this man's speech, maybe this man's confession doesn't actually align with how he feels about his wife in his heart. And yet how many of us know people who take on the name of Christ, take on the name of Christian, say, I love Christ, I worship Christ, and yet show no love care or compassion for the body of Christ, which is his church. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not, I don't want to say that it is utterly impossible for a person who is not attached to a local congregation, a local, a local body of the church to be, to be saved. I, I think it's possible, but, but here's what we need to be certain of. Though they might be a Christian, Though they might be saved, we should be extremely concerned about their souls and about their hearts. They confess to love Christ, but they show no love and they show no compassion for his body. But why is brotherly love so important? Why is church membership so important? Why can't we just say, well, I feel close to God. I feel nourished through my own personal religion. Why isn't that enough? Why do I need to love the brothers? Why do I need brothers to love? 
the answer is this. It is, it is through brotherly love that the love of Christ becomes a tangible thing. I'm, I'm going to summarize the teaching of Anglican theologian uh, Dick Lucas on this fact. Think about Christianity. Um, what, is, what does Paul say about faith? Well, faith, it is by faith that we are saved. By, by faith, we, la- we lay hold to the righteousness of Christ, the atoning work of Christ. But, but he says that faith is a hope for things unseen. And it's that word unseen that we really need to underline. Most of what we do in Christianity, most of what we believe in Christianity, I can't see, hear, I can't see, hear smell, or touch. I believe that the Son of God loved and gave himself for me on the cross. I can't see that. I believe that he is at the right hand of the Father interceding on my behalf. I can't see him doing that. He dwells with me by his Holy Spirit. He comes to me in his Spirit. He indwells me. But I cannot see the Holy Spirit. God himself is Spirit. I can't see God. So much of what we do I cannot see. There's no tangible aspect to it. But when we love our brothers and our sisters in Christ, that divine love becomes a tangible love. I can know the love of God through your loving me and through me loving you. Look with me down in verse 9. The apostle says in the second half of that verse that we have been taught by God to love one another. Here's an interesting thing that you don't see in the English. That's not, that's not Philadelphia. That is the word agape. That is the word agape. We love, the, uh, the, um, we have been taught by God to agape love one another. A word agape is the divine love of God. It is an unbreakable, an unbending dedicated, and immutable, unchanging love. That is the love that he is speaking of there. It is through the Philadelphia brotherly love that we have for one another that the agape love of God for us comes into our tangible existence and we begin to see it and we begin to hear it and we begin to feel that love. Uh, Uh, Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 5. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It has, the love of the agape love of God has been poured into our hearts. My son, he does, he's kind of growing out of this now, but when he was real little, he was fascinated with pouring water from one container into another container. But because he was so little, he didn't really understand that if it was a coming from a big container into a smaller container, that the small container would not hold it. And so my wife and I would just go around the house pretty much all day with towels, cleaning up the messes that he had left. But that is such a wonderful picture of the love of God and how it relates to the love that we have for one another. God is the infinite and eternal 
an immutable vessel. His love is divine and without end. It does not change. And yet he pours that love into a vessel that is infinitely smaller than him than himself. And it begins to flow out of us. And when it flows out of us, it flows out of us in the love that we have for one another, the love that we have for the saints. It is through that brotherly love that we begin to sense the agape love that God has for us. We love God because he first loved us. And it is likewise with our love for the church. We love the church because Christ first loved the church and gave himself for her. Do you struggle to love your family in Christ? I understand if you do. We're not all easy to love. Some of us are very difficult to love. But it's as Joe Steele said in my installation service and part of his charge, he's like, you're not called to minister just to those who you would be friends with, those whose personalities just kind of jive with you. Those who are easy to minister to. You are called to minister to everyone alike regardless of personality. Regardless of, of, of what they're able to offer you. Regardless of what they're able to give you. And it's the same for you. You do not love someone because you get along with them. Because they're on your level. Or because they're able to give you something. You love them because of the one who gave himself for them. That is why you love them. Your brotherly love is an outpouring of the agape love of God, not just for you, but for your brothers and for your sisters and your family in Christ. And this is in itself a great inspiration for us loving one another to give and to receive the love of God for his people. But that's not the only inspiration. And this is our second point. I want us to see how Paul also inspires the church to love one another through encouragement. Through encouragement. Back when I was in seminary, um, I was part of a, a group of seminary students who uh, we were called circuit preachers. In Mississippi, there are a lot of very small Presbyterian churches. I've preached to some congregations that didn't have more than four or five people in them. They weren't able to have a full-time minister. They weren't able to support a full-time minister, but they still needed somebody to come and open up the Word of God to them. And so they became Reformed Theological Seminary's guinea pigs. And so we would go to them, and we would essentially, to the best of our ability, open God's Word to them, Really, but still practicing, not being very good at it. Uh, there's one church that I, that I, I, I preach at fairly often. I've been, I've been doing it for a while. And um, I, don't, I don't remember the text that I was preaching. I don't even really remember the topic that I was preaching. Um, but there was a command in that text. And I said, what I know about this church, I think they're really good at this. I think they're great at this. And so I said that. From the pulpit, I said, I said, I said, this is being, this is, this is being said to do this, and as far as I can tell, you're doing it. You're doing a great job of it. Keep on doing it. And then after the service, so I don't remember much about the service, but I do remember after the service was over, I'm standing in the back, shaking hands, kissing babies, all that good stuff, and 
an, old, an older lady comes back to me, and she gives me a hug, and she said, um, you know, we've had preachers in and out of here pretty much nonstop for a couple of decades. Um, and we get a lot of rebuke. And she's like, we, we, we got it coming. We need a lot of rebuke. But it was so nice for someone to finally come here and say, you know what, you're at least doing something right. Keep on doing it. And that has stuck with me. I, I don't know what the reason is in Reformed preaching that we, that we just really focus in on the rebuking part, which is it's necessary. We need to be rebuked. I need to be rebuked. We're all sinners. And maybe that's it. We have this very robust doctrine of, of total depravity. Apart from the grace of God, we're all depraved in our hearts. But you also had a doctrine of a robust doctrine of total depravity, the Apostle Paul. In fact, he was the one that taught us this doctrine. And look what he does in this text in verse 10. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. He says, you are doing it. I see this in you already. In fact, if you go through 1 Thessalonians, unless I've miscount, this is the third time that he has encouraged the Thessalonians to keep doing what they have been doing. This is divine apostolic encouragement. And this is what we mean. I hope that you are always eager to go to those who you see the gifts and graces of God working in your, in your brothers' and sisters' lives. No matter what that looks like, it looks different. We show brotherly love in different ways. Some of us show brotherly love in, in, in teaching or in, in service or in, in hospitality or in preaching or, or something. No matter what it is, it didn't come from the person. It came from God, and it was a gift for not just that person, but for the entire congregation encourage them in it. When you see it, even at the least little amount of it, praise God in their presence for the gifts of grace that he has given to your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so with that being said, allow me to provide you, Salem Presbyterian Church, with a, a little bit of, of encouragement. And there's a lot that I can give here. I've been astonished at how generous this, this church is. I hadn't been here very long, and we took up a little love offering for a, 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 a brother in Christ in Iraq who was undergoing um, apostasy trials. And I, I won't say how much we raised, but it was a lot more than I was expecting for us to raise in a very short amount of time. This was an immense blessing on this person. I, I see the people serving in Sunday school classes and serving in the, in the choir and, and, and playing instruments and, and teaching Sunday school classes. All wonderful things. But I want to draw your attention. I don't want to mention any names. But I keep going to um, visit, you know, shut-ins, people who are sick. And in my head, I'm kind of thinking, oh, this person's been by themselves. You know, um, you know I really need to go see them because no one else is. And I go there, and I'm not, even the, I'm not even the first person that day who has been over to see them. The first person that day who has come and brought them a meal, who has come and, and sat with them and, and, and prayed with them. There is a, a quiet service amongst the people of, of Salem, and that is good. 
so many people, when they do their good work, they go to the rooftops and they shout it out. So make sure everybody knows about it. There is a quiet spirit of Christian love and service in this congregation. And so I'm going to keep it quiet. <laughs> I'm not going to say any names. You know who you are. I love you. I appreciate you. I'm not, this is not a rebuke. This is an encouragement. Look with me again at what Paul says. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Add to it. Multiply it. Outdo one another in good works and service for the glory of God. So let me encourage you now, as Paul encouraged the Thessalonians, I urge you, brothers, to continue in doing more and more. Do not become stagnant in love, but rather increase in love. For your Lord Jesus loved his people well in his life and ministry, but he showed for that love all the more when he gave his life for them upon the cross. Therefore, beloved, fight the good fight and finish the race. But I want to finish this morning with Paul's last little bit here of some practical instructions for us. How do we show the love of Christ? There's many different ways that we can show the love of Christ as we love our brothers and sisters here at church. But I, I want to draw your attention specifically to what, what Paul highlights. Um, uh, look with me at what he says in verse 11. He says he gives them three instructions, but one principle. Three instructions, but one principle. The instructions are aspire to live quietly, mind your own business, and work with your hands. There's an overriding principle in all three of those. Don't be a bother. It seems like a strange way to end this part. Love the brothers, love the, but don't, don't be annoying. <laughs> don't be a bother. Uh, why, why is he saying that? Well, I won't get really much into the details. Suffice it to say, the Thessalonians have had a, a misapplication of the return of Christ. They think that Paul has said Christ could come in at any minute. And they've interpreted that as meaning, well, that means he could, like, he's coming in the next day or two. And so if he, Christ is coming in the next day or two, why in the world am I going to work? Why can't I? I'm, not, I'm just going to quit my job and just hang out and relax and wait for it to happen. They misunderstand that what Paul means is that Christ could just come in any minute. He could come in the next five minutes. He could come in five days. He could come in 5,000 years. It will be immediate, but it doesn't mean he's going to come in the next few minutes. And so what they have done, and this is really seems to be the, the real sin in the Thessalonian church, is, is that they have begun to presume on the grace of God. It's something that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2. They presume on the grace of God. They say, well, God is going to be gracious. He's going to give all this stuff, and so I don't really have to care. I can become lazy. Well, now they're doing that with the love of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They say, well, if I, if I quit my job, I got, I got this brother or sister over here who will just sell everything and take care of me. And Paul is saying this is a, a heinously misapplication of the return of Christ. The imminency of the return of Christ is not a, not a, not a, not a cause for us to, to be lazy, but it should instead energize our work. We should always be working diligently. You know why? Because in the Christian worldview, all work has honor. All work glorifies the kingdom of God. It was not the case in the, Gre the Greco-Roman world. When, when Paul says there to work with your hands, 
If you had said that to a Roman nobleman, you would have gotten slapped in the face. That's something a slave did. Slaves worked with their hands, not the nobleman. But in Christ Jesus, there is no work that is beneath any of us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're qualified for every work. I've worked with cows for most of my life. Not long, long ago, a friend of mine asked me to help him break a horse. I was not qualified <laughs> to break a horse. He never asked me to do it again, and thank the Lord. <laughs> I was not qualified for that work, but that work was not beneath me. No work is beneath you because it all serves the upbuilding of the kingdom of God. Whether it's cleaning a septic tank, taking out the garbage, cutting grass, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Why do you do those things? Because the kingdom of God needs clean septics. It needs cut grass. It needs the garbage being taken out. You're not serving the kingdoms of this world. You're serving the kingdom which is about end. The kingdom of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we work hard. We live quietly. We mind our own business. We work with our hands. We imitate the glorify our king in doing those things. And I'll, this is what I want to finish with. I, 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 a quick concept of the glory of God. All things are done to the glory of God. Whenever I would teach that in class, I would inevitably get, a, get asked a question. Isn't that selfish? Isn't it, is it kind of selfish of God to just want all the glory to himself? You know what I found that is the best way of answering that question? is to ask another question. How has God been most glorified? Was it not through the mercy that he has shown us in Jesus Christ, who, though he was a king, came in the form of a servant in order that he would serve not lesser kings, but peasants and sinners, and then would lay his life down as a ransom for those sinners. That is how God is most glorified. Does that sound selfish? The glory of God, the mercy of God, was for the sake of the blood of the Son of God. When we love one another, when we serve one another, when we work with our hands, and when we live quietly, we serve the glory of God. And his son, who became like us in every way. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your grace does not boost pride. It humbles. It brings low in order that it might bring us back up in the image of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that this word has broken, convicted, but that it has also healed, and that it has also produced hope and joy and encouragement. Father, we need these things. We need your word. We need what it says. And we are so thankful that you have given it to us. May we be instruments in your hands. May you build your kingdom through your humble servants. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen.